Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. We are uh, starting our Advent series this morning. We're going to be spending four weeks leading to Christmas, looking at the coming of Christ into our world. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. John 1 is where we're going to begin uh, this morning. Okay, John 1. We got a couple passages, so we're going to do a little bit of flipping here. It says this in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light. Everybody say light. Of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Flip to the left in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Just a few pages over to Luke 11. To the left. This is our second scripture for the day. Luke 11, look down at verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. This is the word of the Lord. Grab a seat. Right before us in both of these passages, we have two proposals. If you're taking notes, write these down. If you're not taking notes, write these down. You have two proposals right before you in the scripture. The first proposal is this. Your eyes are lamps. Your eyes are lamps. And the second proposal is this. Light is a man. Light is a man. Two proposals in the scripture. First one, your eyes are lamps. The second one, light is a man. These are two of the most curious passages, I think, within the entire Bible. But when we read them together, something amazing happens, a theological alchemy, if you will. So what I want to do is I want to look at each of these passage, uh, passages and what they're claiming uh, and find out how do they interact together? What can we learn from the scriptures this morning? So firstly, we're going to start here. Eyes are lamps. 
Eyes are lamps. Luke 11, Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of the body. Look, look back down, verse 34, we'll read it for good measure. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of life. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. What the heck is Jesus saying? Have you ever read that and thought, it sounds nice, but I have no idea what that means, right? Essentially, here's what Jesus is saying in a phrase. Jesus is saying, how you see is how you will be. You guys like that? That's my best 90s pastor. Did I, did I, did I deliver? <laughs> how you see is how you will be. Or, or how about this? Maybe a little bit more nuanced. Reality doesn't create your perception, your perception creates your reality. Reality doesn't create your perception. Your perception creates reality. What I mean is that there is a collaboration. This is just true in the natural. There's a collaboration between your eyes and the world around you. Your eyes take in information. They take in color and shape and form and body language. And then what your eyes do then is they create an internal world for you to live in, a mental and emotional world based upon their perception of the world around them. We know this by nature, but the wisdom of God here is that you are responsible. What he's saying is you are responsible for your perception. You are responsible for how you perceive. And actually, this, this theme shows up all over the place in uh, Scripture. It's everywhere. How you see the world and treat the world will become the way you experience the world. How you see the world will become the way that you experience the world. You know, we, we see this all over the place. Jesus says things like this. To the degree you judge, you will be judged. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. The measure you use will be measured to you because there's this spiritual law that how you see the world actually creates the condition, not for the people around you to live in, but for you to, to live in, for you to exist in. So what does he say in verse 35? Look back down at your Bibles. See to it, it's your responsibility, then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines on you. It's your responsibility to steward your internal world, to steward your mental and your emotional world. And your perception has a lot to do with it. It's not based on your circumstances or on how much wealth you have or how much blessing you have, but on what? Jesus is saying this. He's saying a healthy eye is an eye that chooses to look at light and it becomes like a lamp reflecting that light inwards. But an unhealthy eye is the eye that refuses to look at light. And we find out what happens to an unhealthy an eye that is unhealthy, a dark body, a, a, a dark mental and emotional world. I don't think that this is a moral statement yet. It's not about evil. Like if you don't look at light, there's gonna be evil that takes up residence in your body. Maybe eventually it gets there. I think it's a bit deeper than that at first because what happens in the dark? Think about just darkness in general. What happens? You naturally lose clarity. <laughs> It's very simple, not a lot, I'm not pulling any punches today. You lose clarity when it's dark. You can't see, you, you can't make out things. I can't tell you how many times I get up to go to the bathroom at night and I walk and trip over my wife's slippers and they go like skirting across the floor and wake her up. I don't have any clarity, I don't know what's going on. And so I'm bumping into things, I'm like grabbing for the door, where am I at? I, I, 
One time, oh, this is crazy. This is because of NyQuil, though. One time, I, uh, I found myself in my closet getting ready to uh, go to the restroom, and I realized at the last minute, this is not the bathroom. This is a closet. Uh, so I don't know. That's not on, like, the, that doesn't, not NyQuil doesn't warn you about that, that thing. Um, what happens in the dark is a loss of clarity, a loss of understanding. Maybe even in a word for you Bible scholars out there, what happens in the dark is chaos. If you have unhealthy eyes, your eyes will not see well, and you will not live in reality, you will live in a false reality because you haven't seen accurately. Remember this, this is a good paradigm to maybe take a photo of or write this down. All external tension comes from internal tension. All internal tension comes from fear, and all fear comes from a false view of yourself and the world and God. If you learn nothing else, get that. That is so important. All external tension, like why do I have all this tension in my life with my career or with my job or with my, my path or my kids or my spouse or this person at work? Oh, well, all external tension comes from internal tension. There's, there's something wrong inside here. And all internal tension comes from where? It comes from fear. I did that. I said that because I was afraid. I acted that way. I, I made my life about money because I was in fear. Where does fear come from? It comes from a false view of yourself, the world, and God. It comes from how you perceive him. So what is a healthy eye? What makes it so healthy? What makes it so healthy? A healthy eye, if you look down at your Bibles, actually, it says uh, you'll probably have a little, a little uh, mark here. Mine's a little letter. In verse 34, it says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, there's a little mark. If you go down to the bottom of the page of your Bible, it will tell you, uh, it's giving you a little information about that word. It says here, the Greek word for healthy implies generous. Isn't that interesting? So you could read it like this. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eyes are generous, your whole body is full of light. In other translations, it translates that word healthy, single, focused. Do you see what's being said? When you look out at the world and you perceive it, what are the primary things you see? Is it lack, pain, suffering, injustice? Or is it beauty, love, joy? Jesus is saying this, and it could offend some of us. He's saying what you choose to focus on will determine the health of your eye and the clarity and wisdom of your life. What you choose to take in, what you choose to put your focus on. So here's the question. Where do you get a healthy eye? How do you get a generous eye? You need to take in generosity himself. And here's where our other passage comes in. And it says this to us, light is a man. Light is a man. Let's look back at John 1. I won't make you flip there. I got a slide for you. Here's what, here's what John 1 says. Again, speaking of Jesus, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
John wants us to think of Genesis 1 with this language. He starts, in the beginning, where have we heard that before? He's specifically talking about creation. Without Christ, nothing has been made that was, that's been made. Because why does he want us to go to Genesis 1? Because, think about this. What's the first thing created? What's the first thing created? Not sound. It's light. <laughs> okay. All right. Touche. Uh, light. Light begins it all. It's the first thing that shows up. Boom. It's illumination, right? And here's what, Jesus, here's what John is saying. You've got to imagine John sits down to pen this. He's writing this out, and he's like, what was it like when, when I met him? What, what could I use to describe what it was like when I first encountered Jesus? He's like, you know, it was like, it was like getting recreated. It was, like, it was like he was light. It was like in him, God was remaking the entire world. Jesus is the source of all life. That's <laughs> what we learn. You know, he plays the role of the sun. When he is the center of your life, everything is in its correct orbit. When he is not the center of your life, everything is chaos. When he's the center of your life, he will bring about things and grow things in your life that you, you didn't even know were seeds that had been planted. When he's not, you will look at your life and it will be desolate. He's the sun. He's the light. Think about what, what Jesus is saying then. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light, full of him. Because you're perceiving correctly, because you're looking at light, Jesus says, see to it that you make sure you look at light. <laughs> see to it that you make sure you look at him. See to it that you make sure that he becomes your lens. See, Christ is the key to correct perception. Christ is the key to correct perception. You look at the world and you could, you could, in your own wisdom, in your own experience, come to conclusions about the way that the world works. And you could tell those who are younger than you, it's just the way it is. That's just life. And you would be wrong. That's not life. Because you have not taken into account the variable that is Christ. You have not taken into account the variable that is light himself that has shown you have chose to look at other things instead of him. And so your perception is wrong. Your entire world lacks clarity and you're full of darkness. It's sort of like this passage. I always wondered about this passage. It finally made sense this week. Psalm uh, chapter 36, verse nine says this, in your light, we see light. Think about that. In your light, we see light. What it's saying is this, I've so taken in your light. I've so taken in you, Jesus. I've so turned my eyes to look for your light that I see you everywhere. How do you get a generous eye? How do you get an eye that is determined to see God everywhere? You look at the world through Christ. You, 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 know, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, this message. What about pain? What about suffering? What about injustice that is done? Well, let me tell you what, this principle still works. Look at Christ who went through the ultimate pain, the ultimate injustice, and he came out resurrected. We look through Christ. What about wealth and opulence? Well, those things are held together by Christ. We look at them through Christ. They're his. 
What these passages combine to mean is that having a healthy eye means you have really taken in the generosity of God. You've really contemplated it. You've really focused on it. You've really looked at the light. So much so that it's changed the way that you begin to see. You begin to look out every, at the whole world with light. His light becomes your eye and your perception changes. I remember this happening for me. You know, I became a Christian at 17. I'd grown up in a Christian home, been around church, a lot of church. Uh, but, but Jesus became real for me through, through the Holy Spirit, through him speaking to me. And uh, it was a powerful moment of my life. But I remember that the primary thing to have happened to me is it's like, I, I remember thinking, do I have rose-colored glasses on or something? Like, I just see the world so differently now. I remember love just began to explode out of me. I began to care about people that I would have never cared about. I remember that we had off-campus lunch. This was a big deal for a senior in high school. I remember we had off-campus lunch, and I was like, no, nah, I'm gonna stick back and look for the kids who are sitting by themselves. I'm just gonna go sit with them and see if I can encourage them. I'm like, what? Alex at 16 is not thinking that. I love exploded out of me. I saw his light. I saw his generosity towards me and I got generous. I began, my whole life was full of light. I, I was a depressed, anxious teenager. Just ask my parents. And after I became a Christian, everything changed. I remember I, it was over a summer. I came back to, uh, to school that senior year. And I remember I had friends who were just like, what happened to you? Why are you talking like that? Like, what do you, what, 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 what happened over the summer? It's like, oh, I got a generous eye because I've, I've seen his generosity towards me. I encountered the presence of God. It changed everything. In his light, I saw light. But there's another side to this that I, I want to mention. If you don't see God as generous towards you, personally generous towards you, if you haven't looked at his light, then you will not see the world with a generous eye you will begin to perceive that God doesn't have your best in mind or that he doesn't care about you. You will begin to see your neighbor's competition. You will begin to, to, to scratch and claw and try to get ahead. And you'll find yourself years down the road going, why am I in such turmoil internally? It's like, well, what have you focused on? And what happens? What happens when that happens? Well, look at the context of the Luke passage. The context of this passage is, is uh, amazing. This little moment of wisdom is surrounded by stories. And there's stories about people trying to have their prayers heard by other people. There's stories about people who are storing up their wealth here on earth. There are stories about people who want other people to see their righteous acts. Because if you don't see light, you will see lack. And you will start piling up things of this world. You will start looking for the approval of your righteousness from others. You will begin to try to control your exterior world because of the lack that you feel in your interior. It's almost like the more shiny things, the more things that look like light that we need in our lives, the more we reveal the very pitiful state of our internal world. So this morning, I just wanted to ask you this question. What is your relationship to light? When you look out at the world, what's your focus? Are you a realist? Are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? It doesn't matter. You're called to look at light. You're called to look at his generosity. Now, this isn't just on a spiritual level, you know. 
Um, I think we could spiritualize this and we could make it all about, you know, um, how do you feel and what's your thought world like? I, I also think that this directly gets out the created order. See, in, in the John passage, it says, all things were made through the light that is Christ. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So, so here's the follow-up question. What is your relationship to the beautiful things of this world? What is your relationship to beauty? Have you thought about that? The leaves that, are, that change colors? Do you notice them? Do you think about them? The excellence of a nice car? Yeah, God, God, all things are held together by Christ, even that car. <laughs> the, the beauty of a, a crisp, sunny day, a little different than what we're experiencing today. Or what about the, the time when the, the, the first snow falls? Do you think about it? Or the experience of a mouth-watering meal like we're gonna have at the Advent feast? That's like, there's like Jake leading worship. I love when Jake leads worship. That's one of the main ways I connect with the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. And then there's food. And those are the two main ways that I, that I worship in my life. <laughs> For us to see him with a good eye is to look upon and choose to look upon and contemplate the beauty that he inhabits. So this Advent, I want to put a focus on delighting in beauty delighting in beauty, choosing to look at beauty. Think about this with me for a moment. The first message of light, you know, what does light say to us? If, mess- if, if light has a, has a message to send us, what is the message that light is sending us? The message it's sending us is look and receive. Look and receive. Light just simply requests that we see what it shines on. That's all that light asks of us. Just, just see the thing that it shines on. Though light does all sorts of things in our world, it, it brings about growth and it brings about fruit, its only demand on your eyes is to look and receive the beauty that it exposes. Uh, Hebrew scholars have been long been annoyed uh, by the, the fact that in Genesis chapter two, the beauty of the trees is mentioned before the function of the trees. Here's Genesis chapter two, verse nine. It says this, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, Notice this, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Hebrew scholars say that the order of things matters an incredible amount. And so for the writer of Genesis to put the beauty of the trees before the function of the trees is making a statement about what's most important. (laughs) It's important to delight. When was the last time you looked at a tree and thought, now that's a good tree. (laughs) That's a fine tree. What I'm saying is that light illuminates, it shows, it displays because it first tells us there is generosity on this planet. There's generosity to be contemplated and received. There was a fairly unknown um, Christian poet of the 17th century named Thomas Traherne. Has anybody ever heard of Thomas Traherne? Okay, I knew that you had heard of Thomas Traherne. Anybody else knew, knew of Trauma, Thomas Traherne? Okay, he, he was a huge influence on C.S. Lewis and, and the other Inklings, but his writings weren't discovered until the 1890s. Um, and, and he said this, he said this, he said, you never enjoy the world aright until you see how a piece of sand exhibits the wisdom and power of God. You'll never really enjoy this world until you see how a piece of sand exhibits the wisdom and power of God. Traherne was convinced that in order to see the world correctly, you needed to see that everything was contingent on the delight and purpose of God. 
Meaning that everything that we see in this world, from the glass garage door over there to the polished concrete beneath your feet to the person sitting next to you, everything that we see in this world didn't have to be there. And when you realize that, when you realize it didn't have to be there and it's there because God likes it, that's how you get a generous eye. That's how you look upon creation and you say, wow, the generosity, the beauty. See, the grass that's outside is dependent on God's delight. The lichen that brightens an old boulder by a river is dependent upon God's delight. The wine in your glass, the wood that keeps your house standing, your friends, your children, all exist because God wanted them to exist. He delights in them. And when you see that, when you see his delight, then you're able to delight yourself. You're able to enjoy yourself. This is what it means to have a good eye. Our perfect enjoyment is to delight in the thing that God delights in the way that he delights in it. Our perfect enjoyment, you wanna live a life of enjoyment? You have to look upon the world the way that he looks upon the world and your whole body will be full of light. Because then when you taste a really good piece of bread, you're gonna exclaim in your heart, Christ. And when you hear a really lovely melody, a song that just sweeps you off your feet and catches you with wonder, you're gonna say, Christ. And when you experience a really good kiss, you're gonna say, Christ. It's all made and held together by the light that is Christ. Thomas Traherne, here's what he says. A sight of happiness is happiness. Do you understand what he's saying? The way that you see the world is dependent upon the way you think God sees the world. If you think God sees the world and he's like, eh, it's broken, it's fallen, (laughs) whatever, not my intention, then you will see the world that way. But if you see the world, if you see God see the world and he goes, I'm so happy about this. I'm so delighting in what I've created. It's happiness. It transforms the soul and makes it heavenly. It powerfully calls us to communion with God and weans us from the customs of this world. You thought beauty was just like a side thing for those who have the money to enjoy it. No, it's not. Beauty matters. Beauty matters. Traherne is right. It weans the soul from the ways of this world. Sort of like what Paul said here. Next slide. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate, gaze, think about the Lord's glory, his beauty, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's not just to gaze on the human Jesus and what he did on the cross, but to see the glory of Christ in all that has been made, because without him, nothing was made that has been made. It's transformative when you do that. It will shake your life, but only if you receive it. See, Christians especially have difficulty with beauty. Maybe even some of you in this room, you're like, this beauty talk, I don't really, doesn't connect with me. There's not just one response to beauty. There are actually three responses to beauty that all of us have. The three responses to beauty are to flee beauty, to attempt to own beauty or to delight in beauty. Many Christians respond to beauty with a flight from it. 
It's not uncommon in Christian circles to hear things like, I'm more of a function over form kind of person. Or, oh, that's so wasteful. That could have helped the poor. Or, how much did they spend? (laughs) Or, I don't know, it's all a little much, don't you think? This attitude about beauty reveals a view of the world, a way of thinking about the purpose of things. And and ultimately what God expects from us in relationship to what he has made. This flee from beauty comes from a belief that God expects productivity and efficiency beyond delight. It is an ignoring of the Sabbath, which teaches us that God took a full day just to look at what he made. He's like, it's so good. It's so beautiful. I'm gonna take a whole day off just to look at it. And this view of beauty is unfortunately sanctified and spiritualized through warnings of idolatry, which is the second response to beauty. It is actually something to think about. The second response to beauty is I need to own it. I need to own it. Esther DeWall in Lost in Wonder, here's what uh, she has to say. And this is just fascinating. Try to follow this. The gift of sight was one of God's earliest gifts to the earthling, the dust person in the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis, we are given that first glimpse of the sight of beauty, every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Did Adam and Eve at first enjoy those trees and see them with wonder and delight? Pay attention. And did everything change with the desire to possess the fruit of the tree? Was that when things began to go wrong? Are we being told about the connection between wonder and delight and non-attachment? about standing back with reverence and awe and being aware of the destructive impulse of wanting to own and to control. And you see this in the context of Luke, do we not? It's those who haven't looked at light, who haven't seen the generosity of God towards them, who haven't looked at a piece of sand and said, look how this, this exhibits the beauty and wisdom of God. It's those who need to arrange their exterior world, who need to own and accumulate in order to make up for the lack of their interior world. Unhealthy eyes fill a body with fear and fear leads to idolatry. Too much wine, too much indulgence, too much using creation to fill the hole that only a creator can fill. And both of those responses, whether you're like, who needs beauty? Well, that's, that's like, that's girl stuff. <laughs> or it's, I must own, I must possess. I need that car, I need that, I need this, I need that. I better have that in my life. Both of those responses to beauty tell me and tell us that Christians need help delighting in beauty. We need help. We need help knowing how to worship Christ through beauty. So here's where I want to end uh, this morning. I want to end on a very practical note. And this is a little bit of an experiment. We'll see if this goes well. I told Emily last night, I'm like, I'm going to do something weird and you're not going to be there to kind of like smile at me. So maybe Jake, you can be the smile at me because I wonder what people are going to think about this. Uh, John makes this connection, right? He's making this connection between the light of Christ and the light at the beginning of creation. Through him, all things were made and in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. He's making this connection. And so when you think about it, the goal for all beautiful things in our world is a sacramental goal. 
in a sense. It is there. Why beauty? Why do we have even taste buds? Why did God God give us these things that we can perceive the beautiful world? Uh, It is all there to lead to worship. That's why it's there. You have taste buds to lead to worship. You have eyes to lead to worship. You have a nose to lead to worship. You have ears to lead to worship so that you can perceive the beautiful thing that Christ is. So I want to practice this a little bit this morning, sort of a how to see beauty rightly and how to, how to use beauty as a, as a way to worship Christ, to go through beauty to Christ. Uh, so I'm going to show you some images. Actually, before you put them up, don't put them up yet. Uh, if, do we have, who's on lights today? I'm going to have you dim the lights because, okay, you're going to do it, McKenna. I'm going to have you dim the lights because um, we're going to look at some images. I want to make sure they show up well. And before we do that, I want to give you three lenses for viewing beauty, okay? Lens number one is the beauty of the message. The beauty of the message. Does this image, we're going to look at a painting and some other things, does it tell a truth about what it means to be human or about God? Is it telling us the truth about our condition? So that's one lens. The second lens is this, the beauty of human involvement. Man, how was that ordered? the time and the energy that it took to put that together, the design and the intention behind it. Wow, human involvement. That wouldn't have existed without a human actually, actually doing that. Um, and then lastly, the last lens we're gonna use is the beauty of created materials. Color and shape, light and form, the things that were just, we had nothing to do with it. It was just given to us by God. Okay, so first, this is a Caravaggio painting and it's called The Call of Matthew. Uh, what you can see in the bottom left-hand corner is this, this young man, he's been counting money, and he, he's, he's uninterested in what's going on above him. He's just interested in the money. He's interested in what's going on. He may even, I just kind of look, you get just his nose and his mouth there, and it sort, it sort of seems like he's almost ashamed of something, or he's, he, he doesn't feel himself worthy. Because you can see up in the top right corner, that's Jesus, and he is pointing at Matthew, you, you follow me. And we can see that the light of the painting, you know, Caravaggio, he was, uh, there were, there were, he was a Renaissance painter, and many people thought that the way he used light was divinely inspired. It was, it was that profound when you see a Caravaggio painting. You can see the way that the light works. It's stunning. And the light is moving from where Christ is, and it's shining on Matthew. Does this, what is the message of this painting? Think about, the, let's think about our, our filters. The message of this painting is, I know what it's like to feel unworthy. When I look upon this, I know what it's like to be Matthew, to be caught up in the manipulating of external things in my life in order to take care of the lack I feel internally. I know what it feels like to, to sit around people who no doubt know you well and, and think, who's this guy to be talking about the grace of God, to be following Jesus? So there's the message. There's also just the order of it. This wouldn't have existed without a human. This was not in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> this painting did not exist in the Garden of Eden. God was interested in creating humans who could then do creative things. And so what we see is is this took an incredible amount of talent, an incredible amount of time. Look at the use of color and and light. And then there's just the simple fact that God gave us these colors and light, and he, he, he put us in this world where we can communicate to one another through art, things that are difficult to articulate through speech. It's beautiful. You guys tracking? I see a lot of you, you're like... I don't like this. Okay, we're going to keep going. Okay, 
Next photo, next photo. I'm a bit of a green thumb myself, and uh, this is an English garden, okay? An English-style garden. I love gardening. I love plants. Every summer, my wife, we get to the fall, and she's like, I think we spent too much on plants this summer. And I'm like, yep, yep, we definitely spent too much on plants this summer. Um, what I want you to notice here is the design with which somebody put this garden together, because it looks wild and it looks a little rambunctious, but it's not, actually. It's very ordered. Uh, as you can tell, there's shorter plants that are closer to the path. And as they get further away from the path, they get taller and, and a little bit bigger and fuller. And you even just, you, it's, it's pleasing to the eye, is it not? There's a sense of order even amongst kind of the chaos. Or you look at just the color palette that was used. These are, there's purples and yellows. That's not on accident. Those are contrast colors uh, on the color wheel. So we're seeing there's, there's beauty here, right? That it was thought about, right? We see the mix of, of tiny little leaves and tiny little flowers and then broader leaves. This has been thought about. Or one of my favorite things is just the whimsy. I think whimsy is a huge part of beauty, the whimsy of these poofs here. They're just kind of whimsical. They're like almost pointing, they're almost otherworldly or like Dr. Seuss, right? Um, and, and what is it pointing to? What is it pointing to? It's pointing to the beauty of, of a gardener. I mean, think about the most ancient profession. The, the truest and most ancient profession is gardening, okay? Uh, <laughs> so you think of a gardener who, who, this wouldn't have existed without the gardener. It wouldn't have existed without the mind of the human who's involved in putting this together and planning it out. It's just, it's just beautiful, but it wouldn't have existed without God. You look at that and you look at the colors and you just go, I am so great. I mean, this is me, so I'm kind of nerdy now. This is like, I save this for Emily typically. Uh, I am so grateful to live in a world with flowers like that. I, I say that all the time. I am so grateful that I live in a world that looks like that. That is beauty. That's beautiful. Okay, lastly, and this is something a little tad unique, but I think beautiful. Uh, this is an example of Japanese pottery. It's a, it's a Japanese teacup, and uh, it's done within the wabi-sabi uh, framework or, or school, if you will. And at, at first glance, you're like, oh, it's a dented earthen vessel. It just looks kind of earthy. It's dented. You know, what, 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 it kind of looks like um, a piece of garbage, maybe. But I, I don't think so, but some people could. I, I look at this, and you know what I think? I think that it tells a truth about what it means to be human. It says that there is beauty even in aging. That none of us are going to be able to slow down aging. None of us are going to be able to escape the effects of gravity and light. But there's something profound about living a life that doesn't try to reject aging, but actually leans into it as a, as a possibility that it tells a story about what it means to be human. It's real. It's earthy. I think about the beauty of just a, a kiln-fired glaze. Just what a glaze is. It's amazing. It's like this like powder that you put on something and, and the fire turns it hard and, and brings a color out of it. Just, it's, it's beautiful. And there's this odd thing. It's an asymmetrical shape, but there's this balance about it. It's beautiful. Okay, enough of that. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you're like, move on. Uh, do you see, here's what I want you to see. The, if the, the light of Christ, the light of Christ is in the color. It's in the shape it's in the fire that hardens the glaze. It's in the message of the painting that shines, that, that shows grace could be given to anybody, even a tax collector. 
It's all Christ. And when you see like that, your whole body will be full of light. And that light which shines in the darkest places will become like life for you. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.